0: Hey, everyone. Before we get started, I wanted to mention a big update. As you all may know if you're following this case, Michael Turney was arrested on August 20th of 2020 and is now being charged with the homicide of Alyssa. We recorded these episodes prior to this update, so we wanted to provide that update here and also just send our love over to Sarah. With that, let's go ahead and dive into this episode.
1: Warning. This podcast involves discussions of a spooky and graphic nature not suitable for children or the faint of heart. Strong language and mature content is present. Listener discretion is advised. You have been warned.
0: Hey, spooksters, and welcome back to another stabby snippet here on Three Spooked Girls. My name is Tara, and as always, I am joined with my ghoul friend, Jessica. Hello, peoples. Hello. And since we are honing in on our 2nd pot this is your quick reminder to go get your tickets. Our general admission tickets do not have a cap. Our VIP ones do. We are recording these super in advance, so there may be some left. There may not be. We don't know. Right now, there is some left. We've gotten a good little influx going, so thank you guys who are coming, and uh, yeah, we're super excited about that. So if you want to check that out, head to the link tree in the show notes or any of our socials. We have it posted everywhere for you guys. But today, I am going to be telling you about the Alyssa Turney case. Now, this is going to go a bit different than regular stabbies. I've followed this case personally for quite some time, and it's one that's always pulled at my heart. And I've just wanted to cover it. With that, I've kept up with her sister Sarah's updates that she's been doing to seek justice for Alyssa. And if you're familiar with this case, you already know what's going on. You've already probably seen her TikToks or listened to her podcast Voices for Justice. So with that, I mentioned this is going to be different. I'm going to run through the case per usage, but we were also able to have the opportunity to speak with Sarah as well. So this is going to be in two components. So stay tuned next week for the second half. There will be parts I discuss now that we dive into a bit deeper once we do chat with Sarah. As you guys know, we always send love and respect to the families who have loved ones who have been a victim of the cases we do cover. So we felt, especially with this one, it was extremely important to share that interaction with you as there's certain things we wanted her to explain to you guys herself versus me because this is her life. I think that sometimes some people forget that these cases are real life and there are people out there fighting and going through hurdles and trauma and just so much stuff that we who aren't in this kind of situation can imagine. So that's why we wanted to reach out to her and let her tell her story as well. But with that, let's go ahead and we're going to dive into the case. So Alyssa was born on April 3rd, 1984. Her mom, Barbara, met and married Michael Turney when Alyssa was about two and a half to three years old. Michael was an electrician and also had been a prior sheriff deputy. Along with Alyssa, Barbara also had a son who was 10 at the time. Michael himself had children from his previous marriage. He had three sons. They were described as a, quote, Brady Bunch type of family who came together and then blended their families. Then Barbara and Michael would have their last child together, which is Sarah. In 1993, when Alyssa was just eight years old, sadly, Barbara died from cancer. And there's a lot to unpack with that. There's also a lot of personal family details on her podcast. If you aren't familiar, she talks about things from her perspective. She interviews family and friends, and she also shares conversations with her father. After Barbara's death, Michael was said to become much stricter with Alyssa. The relationships between Mike and his two daughters were night and day. So he'd be super strict with her and a lot more lax with Sarah. And I'm probably gonna sound like a broken record on certain parts. Sorry, guys, but we're definitely gonna discuss that with Sarah. Alyssa was also described as a typical teen. She was outgoing, fun-loving, was someone who could make anything fun, according to an interview with one of her friends on a 2020 special about Alyssa. And in the videos and pictures I've seen, honestly, she always looked, like, in the good times, she seemed to really beam positivity and, like, positive vibes and just fun. Like, you could just see it. And like most teens, she was more interested in her social life with her friends and her boyfriend instead of schoolwork, which, like, anyone who's been a teenager or a teenage girl, like, you could probably feel that because I fucking understand.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Priorities, people.
0: Right. Exactly. Exactly. She was also described as lively and honestly, to me, it seems like she was a person who wasn't afraid to speak her mind. There was this home video of like some CD and she was like, no, I wanted Notorious B.I.G. or something. And it was just super funny. I was laughing. I was like, oh, my God, I love it. But she did get deemed as a, quote, wild child. And it was noted she did smoke weed sometimes. But like, I don't know. No fucking big deal in my book. There's plenty of worse things she could have been doing. Just saying.
1: Well, we also grew up like really close to chico so (laughs) this is true (laughs) i think our outlook on weed is probably a lot different than maybe a lot of other places in the country because it was something that was just part of culture
0: yeah So Alyssa had a job at Jack in the Box. Again, relatable. I personally worked in fast food in high school, too. So it's just like all these very familiar things.
1: She worked at Subway and it was wonderful for me.
0: (laughs) Apparently it was great for Jessica. (laughs) So the reason I bring up her job is because Mike would actually go by there and check on her. He said it was to make sure she was really working as late as she was saying she needed to and, quote, not off with the boy, which, okay. All right. If a child is doing these kind of things, I understand fair enough cuz you want to make sure your kids doing what they're supposed to, but he took it a bit too far in my opinion. He apparently had a thing for cameras and recording videos. Like all these home videos are from his cameras that you guys see online or may have seen on TikTok. We'll get into that in a minute, but there's a video up on Sarah's YouTube of a time Mike was there and on the little like analog date I don't know what to really call that but the little date on the footage it said December 19th 2000 and he was sitting in the car with the camera on Alyssa while Alyssa and whoever she was working with were closing up and you kind of see her swat towards him to go away because she saw him obviously and she knew he was there and then you see she's talking to a co-worker who I believe is, was a supervisor type of thing anyways Mike keeps recording and all of that basically the whole time while they're closing up and you know sitting there it's like a good five or so minutes in the time lapse Uh huh. and anyway so they close up she comes out and she comes into the car and she looks pissed off and at first I was like yeah I'd be pissed off my fucking dad was doing that too but that's not what it was it was she was telling him how he basically got her into trouble because the supervisor's like a douchebag basically was like that's illegal like you can't do that and she was like I told him like this is my first job and my dad's just proud of me and just recording me like he's not recording anything else don't worry about it like it's just home video type of thing mm-hmm. and then that was that and then she's like can i drive and <laughs> i'm like oh i remember asking that all the time and the video basically ended so there's that on top of the camera he carried around and uh this this came out much later in the actual timeline but i'm just telling you guys now he also had hidden cameras in their house in the vents and also outside as well On top of that, he had a program for their landline phone that recorded every call. Please pocket that little piece of info. Along with that home video, there's a few others that are on Sarah's YouTube as well. And like I said, you guys have probably seen these on TikTok. If you haven't, I'm just going to go ahead and run through them. So one was dated on March 20th, 2000. And it's a video at a pool, like at a Motel 6 or something. And Alyssa is asking her dad multiple times to stop recording her while she's swimming. Because that's what's happening. She's in the pool swimming and he's... recording her and this last one is probably I think one of the most known home videos it's of Sarah Alyssa and Mike and they're at like a park or on a trail or something like that with like some trees and stuff and how the whole video goes is Sarah's trying to you know it's like little Sarah she's playing with the camera and like how do I record you know like just messing around with it and stuff but it was already recording and so like they go back and forth a little bit and then Mike takes the camera and he leaves it on and he starts yelling at Alyssa quote Alyssa's a stupid moron and says it a bunch to like. dig at her and stuff. But I'm like, how the fuck can you say that to your fucking child? Like Jesus fuck. And then also the reason why this video is more known is because before that, when Sarah's holding it, you hear Alyssa say to Sarah, dad's a pervert. Now, apparently Mike always acted like Alyssa was stupid. What I was reading was like she had ADHD and an IEP, which none of that means you're stupid. None of that at all. So take note of that too. I'm kind of like just kind of quickly going through their childhood because, like I said, when you hear the part with us with Sarah, we will definitely dive into that more. So, I do want to jump ahead to the day Alyssa disappeared. So, on May 17, 2001, this was the last day of school. Alyssa was finishing up her junior year, so she was 17 at Paradise Valley High School in Phoenix. And that day, she would actually end up leaving early because Mike picked her up about midday, and according to Mike, he said he did this so he could take her to lunch and according to him again while they were at lunch they got into an argument because she was asking slash he says sometimes like telling but asking him for more freedom so like not having to check in as much or you know being able to go hang out with her friends and things like that sounds reasonable to me especially at 17 years old it's going to be summer break
1: well Yeah. And I think at the age of 17, forgive me if you're a 17 year old, because you'll be like, no. (laughs) But then when you're 34, you'll be like, yes, trust me. Oh, God. (laughs) There's just a moment where I realized that I was 17, 17 years ago, (laughs) 17 years ago. (laughs) Like, I don't like this feeling. I don't want this feeling. How do I get rid of it? Oh, God. Anyways, but when you're 17, like, I remember, I even though it was 17 years ago, I do remember that feeling of, like, God, Mom, like, why do you have to know where I am at all times? But, like, now I look back and I'm like, why didn't I check in more? Why didn't I tell my parents where I was going? Even at 19, when I was like, I'm going to drive to Canada, I was should have been like,
0: I should have told my parents where I was going. Yeah, but this is a bit more than that.
1: Right. This sounds like he was super controlly.
0: Yes, for sure. And according to Mike's 2020 interview, his reply to her was, quote, I told her that as long as you're under my roof, you're going to have to check in with daddy because daddy is a nervous wreck if you don't. End quote.
1: I have so many feelings about that statement.
0: Yep, yep. He also says that the last time he saw her was she was storming off into her room, like once they got home, and that was that. Supposedly, according to him, after this, he left to pick up Sarah from school and run some errands. No spoilers. We're recording this prior to the conversation type of situation because we have a crazy schedule. We're definitely going to get into this with Sarah. But she has said in different interviews and stuff I've watched and from, you know, listening to her show and reading and everything, Mike actually did not show up on time when school was over. So she ended up walking over to a friend's house, which she was like, that happened. So it wasn't anything like, you know what I mean? Like in her brain. She's just like, whatever, as a 12-year-old, because she was 12 when this happened. He picked her up from there. Now, she says that he told her he couldn't get a hold of Alyssa, so he wanted her to try and call her. Sarah called, but there was no answer. I believe she called a few times. So they went back home. And what's interesting here to me, and I'm sure many of you who already know what I'm about to say, he actually did not enter Alyssa's room first. He sent Sarah in, which two things. One, being a parent whose child is missing plus being law enforcement. Why haven't you already went into that room when you're acting all panic and acting like something bad has happened to her already and look for these things because you were literally trained to do that? Just saying. So off that soapbox, like I said, Sarah entered Alyssa's room and with this first off, Alyssa was described as a very tidy person and her room was kept clean. But this day, no, it was not the case. Her backpack had been dumped out and all of her personal belongings, including her cell phone, was there. And along with that, they ended up finding a note. The note read, Dad and Sarah, when you dropped me off at school today, I decided I really am going to California. Sarah, you said you didn't want me around. Look, you got it. I'm gone. That's why I saved my money. Dad, I took three hundred dollars from you, Alyssa. So little side note. So the California thing after Barbara died, Michael cut them off from her side of the family. But apparently one of the aunts lived in California and supposedly he was going to send Alyssa there because she's, you know, such a wild child, quote, quote. She wasn't someone that was in their life and stuff. So I'm sure she was not very fucking happy about it. So there's that. And then the $300 thing, essentially, when I was watching one interview, she had said that it was like she had taken it from their dad, but she had already paid him back prior to this. So that was just weird to mention type of thing. Now, if you were going to run away, like the note said you were, you'd probably take that money you mentioned that you were saving up because you'd need it if you were leaving the state. But... Her account that she was saving money in, it had $1,800 in it, and it's never been withdrawn, ever.
1: From Arizona, you could get to California on $300, but you wouldn't be very successful.
0: But she didn't have that $300. She had already given it back.
1: Oh, I just thought maybe she re-stole it.
0: No, I don't think so.
1: That's a really weird thing for me that, like, why would you put that in a note?
0: Mm Mm-hmm. And another thing that's been noted is, like, it was hours before he even called and reported it to the cops. And since it was, quote, looking like a runaway thing, there was no Amber Alert.
1: But she was a minor.
0: Exactly. I don't understand. It blows my mind,
1: like, because I understand, like... Amber Alerts are supposed to help with, like, abduction cases and missing children, like, when they first leave. But, like, if you don't put out an Amber Alert, people don't know that someone's missing. And so if I were to be on a train or at the airport and I were to see a 17-year-old girl sitting there and I was nosy, I mean, like, you get Amber Alerts, we get Blue Alerts now, we get there's Silver Alerts for when old people go missing, like...
0: Yeah. And some other notable things. So remember how I mentioned all of Michael's surveillance stuff that he had everywhere? Mm-hmm. Well, police are like, great, you have this stuff. Let's take a look at it and see what went on that day or what she looked like, how she was acting herself, that kind of thing, or what she was wearing and blah, blah, blah. According to the Charlie Project, she was wearing gray shorts, a white tank top, and gray sneakers. So just like casual summer outfit. So police were asking, you know, like... Like, can we look at it and things like that? He basically was like, I'm not going to give this to you because there's nothing of use. There's nothing you could use. It's all like moot point. But he was willing to give them other footage of Alyssa with friends like You know, boys who were friends or her boyfriend, or, and then he also gave some footage, I believe, of when she was with male co workers because he was basically like, they could be suspects. And it's like, okay, great. But none of that is from that day. So just saying. Right. Sadly, the police would deem this as a runaway type of situation, even though clearly there are a bunch of red flags that should have pointed them to looking at this deeper. Now, I'm not going to dive into it too deep, but I definitely want to mention, and trigger warning right here for those of you listening, I am going to briefly mention some stuff of sexual abuse for a minute. So if you need to fast forward or skip that, that'll be in the show notes for you. So like I said, interviews are being done, of course, with friends and all the people that knew her, that type of thing. Well, some friends had said that Alyssa confided in them that she had been sexually abused by Michael. One friend had told investigators that Alyssa said it happened when she was younger, and he picked her up early from school one day when this happened." And the friend also said, quote, "He pulled over into an unoccupied area somewhere in the desert area. He started fooling around with her. It got aggressive." End quote. And on top of that, another friend recalled in her interview with the police that Alyssa had told her she once woke up to her father gagging her with a sock. And there's also an incident when Alyssa was in grade school. I believe she was nine, so shortly after their mother had passed. And she told a teacher that she had had sex with her dad. But of course, Mike denies all of these allegations. And if that's not enough, there's something else very red flag, in my opinion, and other people's opinion too. Apparently, Michael had written a parent-child contract and made Alyssa sign it. And part of that said she was never abused, meaning also sexually abused, if I'm understanding that correctly. And his response as to why he did this was, quote, All of my children, I did that way. It was an experiment of mine that I learned in some class I took because I didn't have any raising when I was a child. I learned in a psychology class that you make a contract with your children. That sounded like a good idea to me, end quote.
1: I'm so confused because like, why would you need to put, why would you even need to put in your contract that you were never abused? Wouldn't you think it would be like, you're going to clean your room every day? Right. I can see that. Like, I've actually heard of that in like child development classes where they talk about like making a contract with your children and the aspect of like, these are the responsibilities you're agreeing to and, and understanding that by signing this, you're being accountable to these actions that you're going to do.
0: Not an NDA. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, like a non disclosure agreement. Like, here you go. Like, you can't ever talk that I ever, you know, did something bad to you.
0: Ugh. And people around this case were definitely like, mm, something's wrong here. So, Dr. Steve Pitt was a forensic psychiatrist who consulted on the case for Phoenix PD. And when he saw that, he said, quote, Probably the biggest thing that stood out to me was that Michael Turney had the absolute need for control and dominance over his stepdaughter. And the document was essentially a behavioral contract on steroids that was making a myriad of tasks on the part of Michael Turney of an adolescent girl that were, in my opinion, holy, many of which were wholly inappropriate. End quote. And another interesting tidbit for you to pocket is that, uh, like I said, Mike sat down for the 2020 interview in, I believe that came out in like 2009, but he never sat down and did the formal interview with the police. Along with this, Mike also claimed that Alyssa called the house a week after she had disappeared. Now you're probably thinking, great, he records all the phone calls, the police will get to listen to this, see what she said, see how she sounded, etc. But no. I don't remember exactly what the excuse was, but moral of the story was he didn't give it to them. He essentially I think came up with some bullshit like it got taped over or didn't record, that kind of shit. Well, things started initially not to look good for him because, you know, they at first they were kind of like looking at him and stuff. And they said he started to become, quote, paranoid and hostile. He had blamed a union he worked for during the 70s or so and said they had it out for him and they stole Alyssa and they were responsible, basically. And more on that later. Now, sadly, nothing really seemed to happen over the next few years. But in 2006, a serial killer named Thomas Himner was in jail in Florida. And while he was there, he started making claims of killing multiple people, including Alyssa and also including J.C. Dugard, who y'all probably know she was actually found alive. So that's bullshit. So once he started making these claims, you know, they started paying attention to him to be like, let's see if he did this because that would give answers. And what they did was when they were like, does he even know who she is? They did like a photo lineup thing and he was able to pick her out. But that's pretty much where the consistencies and like correlations stop because after that stuff started not adding up and there was inconsistencies with stuff he was saying versus real life. So the big one is that he tried to say she was a heroin addict, but she was absolutely not. And then he had talked about, quote, unusual sexual traits, end quote, that Alyssa's boyfriend was able to tell the police that stuff he was saying was lies and not true. On top of that, they also had Thomas do a polygraphed house and he failed. And what happened with that was it just he ended up doing a false confession, as we see so many times. And they assumed that he probably just had seen her photo and her story in a newspaper and built his story from there. Now, while that whole thing is an emotional roller coaster I can't imagine going through, this happening, though, did push things to be relooked at. And in 2008, investigators from Phoenix PD, the missing persons unit, they finally opened up her case to officially declare that foul play was involved in her disappearance. Now, obviously, when they're relooking at things, they're like, we need to look at this dad again. So they would end up issuing a search warrant on the home. And I don't. They were expecting to find everything they found. So they found, quote, a van filled with gasoline cans and 26 handmade explosive devices that were filled with gunpowder and roofing nails. The Phoenix Police Department said it was the largest stockpile of explosives it had discovered in its history. History. They also found 19 high caliber assault rifles with two handmade silencers. And they also found a 98 page document that was titled Diary of a Madman Martyr. And Michael had written it. And A summary from an article I read said that, quote, Turney believed the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, the electrician's union to which he belonged, was involved in the kidnapping and murder of Alyssa. The document revealed that he planned to blow up the union hall while killing himself in the process, end quote. Obviously, he was arrested for this. And he was given the conviction of unlawful possession of unregistered destructive devices. And that carried a maximum penalty of 10 years, and a $250,000 fine slash all combined. He did plead guilty to this in March of 2010. He ended up serving roughly seven years prison time, and he got out in 2017. Now, once Mike got out, Sarah wanted answers. She originally advocated for her father and thought he was innocent, but as stuff started coming out, there was a change. Now, kind of like how I introed and said this earlier, I do believe that this part of where the case goes from here is hers to tell. But before I end my part here, I'm going to end you with a quote of what Mike said to Sarah when they met up when he got out in 2017. Quote, be at my deathbed, Sarah, and I will give you all the honest answers you want to hear. And Mike also added that he would confess to everything if the state agreed to give him lethal injection within 10 days.
1: Which they cannot do. Just, like, legally, that's something you can't do. Because he has to be able to file appeals and there has to be a proper, like, make sure shit is correct. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So we are going to wrap things up here for today. If you had not heard this case, hopefully you guys learned something. Like I said, in the meantime, while we are waiting for part two, which will be next Thursday, we're changing things up so you guys get these back to back. Check out Sarah's TikTok. Check out Voices for Justice podcast. And we'll see you on Monday for a regular episode. And then we'll see you on Thursday for our conversation with Sarah. Bye, guys. Bye. (laughs)